welcome to episode 415 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with British Indo-American poet and visual artist Roni Bopla from her home in South Sacramento, California. And we discuss from London to Sacramento, that journey, and uh, Luna's Cafe coming into her own, her influences, translations, and how good they are, the partition, India and Pakistan in particular we're talking about. She shares a wonderful poem titled War God, and we talk about names and developing a new world, some colonial stuff too. Roni Bopla on this week's program. We also have an EW essay titled Rainwater, and our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, in honor of April as Poetry Month, shares two poems by W.H. Audens and one by Robert Frost. And we have another poem called Old Man by yours truly. All of this, of course, will be infused and imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 415 of Troubadours and Tours.
rainwater. Sacramento, Santa Barbara, Oregon, London, India, Sanskrit, Hindi, English, and American. I am a student, a teacher, an advocate, a preacher, a poet. The imperialism seeps through my windows and screens, a cultural overtaking in subtle extremes with sense of self somewhere in between. I am here on my couch with early April sunlight streaming in as gunfire from a police gun range echoes off the mountainside. Such an ugly sound. It turns me around. And people in the neighborhood have signs stuck in their yards claiming support for law enforcement. I wonder why. We have BLM arranged in white beige stones in our front lawn under a white birch with a wind chime that has a light blue blown glass ball that illuminates when the sun goes down after it energizes the chime in a day's time. And the birdbath stands elegant in the rust-colored mulch filled with rainwater and traces of moss. I wonder how I can see all of this and talk about it in my mind, between my ears, as it warms my heart, fills my soul, and quells my fears. This natural world and its rhythms, its tried and true failures, successes, and perpetual schisms, to share some moments together in one place, though physically separated by thousands of miles. Time, space, are but semblances of an imagination, yet they are so prescient in our interpretation of life. We can connect or we can partition in response to our strife.
Hello. Roni Bopla, is that you? It is me. Is this EW conundrum? It is. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. It's my pleasure. It's it's always wonderful to be able to talk about myself. <laughs> I hear you. It's good that we're honest. Yes. Well, before we get started, let me uh, share with the listeners a little background information. Roni Bopla is a British Indo-American poet and visual artist who resides in California. She is a member of the inaugural cohort of Rooted and Written a series of writing workshops taught by people of color for people of color. Her poems have appeared in Kosumne's Rivers Journal, Medusa's Kitchen, Flumes, Brevities, and Tiger's Eye. The Crocker Art Museum recently featured the Indian Accent, an acrylic and collage art piece that Roni created in a class taught by artist and activist Milton Bowens. She is a poetry student in the Master in Fine Arts and Writing program with Pacific University. Troubadours and Raconteurs is happy to have on the program Roni Bopla. Again. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And uh, you're talking with us from your place, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm guessing somewhere near Santa Barbara. Actually, a little bit more north. I'm in Sacramento, California, the capital of the state, and I'm in specifically I'm in South Sacramento. South. And uh, one of the the things that I thought of when I applied to Master in Fine Arts programs is, where do I want to go that is akin to my own personal experience? And I am very West Coast. Um, the weather, the um, the sense of camaraderie that comes from being near the ocean and uh, kind of the widest expanse. You have been living in Sacramento, and yes, and uh, you were born there, or were you born in a different part of California, a different part of the United States? Actually, I was born in London. My both of my parents are Indian in terms of heritage. They were pre-partition, meaning that both of my parents were born before 1947, so they were part of what's known as Bharat, which was, its name was converted to India based on the British British Raj. So long story short, my parents are originally Indian, as I am. However, their migration to England I was conceived and born, and so was my younger brother. And then we ended up coming here. My parents split when I was pretty young. My father's still in London. My mother is here with me now. And my brother's moved on. He's a he's a nurse practicing in a city nearby. So that's pretty much my family kind of collage, if you will be. And... I appreciate you sharing that. And how did poetry become something of interest for you? Was it something that started when you were young? It is something that I, I took an interest when I was young. It was more in the context of literature. My father, uh, he went to college as far as he could, and he took me to the library. And everything was within walking distance. And so he introduced me to a lot of English language writers but more so of course in school like most of us we 
pick up on language um, a little bit more in our formal education. But my my major interest and what made me choose this avenue for my best mode of expression started about 20 years ago while I was here in Sacramento. And uh, that can be attributed to the simple opportunity that I received as a performer on the stage, which was at a local cafe. And the cafe is Luna's Cafe. It's a longstanding uh, venue for all types of performances. And that's where it began, really. And then I just realized, uh, what have I been doing all my life? (laughs) This is what I should be doing, is writing poetry and thinking about art and uh, engaging with people who are interested in literature. So that was when you were um, in your teens or 20s, would you say? 20s. 20s. I'm I'm 50 now. 50, yeah. About my age. I'm 54. Mm. Um, And uh, if you're anything like me, just starting to figure things out. Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So some of your influences, are they all poets from the Western uh, culture, uh, or do you find them some of them going back to where your roots are in India? You know, it's interesting. I, I think about that often because what's considered the canon in literature really varies. Uh, for myself, it does go back to my roots uh, just for the simple reason that I can relate to some of the culture that's expressed within the artworks of the literary artworks. And so those are, for example, living are Chitra Banerjee Kutivakurani. She, she's currently publishing novels, but she, in her earlier works, she produced two major works, The Black Candle, as well as Leaving Yuba City. And then Bharati Mukherjee, more so novels, but, you know, of course, the genres do so do overlap so much and so the poetic language there and just addressing some of the things that uh these authors were so comfortable in doing so and then of course some going much farther back we're talking about tagore uh we're talking about uh, hafiz the sufi poets kabir rumi all of those uh really authors that could uh that predate the partition and those were times when uh, you know a lot of the people in south india and in that region were more unified and they were unified through the arts so I, I i do have an affinity to some of the classic writers in that tradition not to say that i haven't read some of the authors within the Western tradition or, or British tradition, I just have more of an affinity towards some of these writers. And, and some of the contemporary works, too, I consider part of the canon because a lot of literature is that is produced now are more so women writers who haven't had much of a, an opportunity to write and produce works as their male counterparts. And so they're really reinventing a canon that I'm really, I'm, I'm just enjoying. I really am admiring what they're putting out. When you do read, when mm-hmm. you do read uh, poets from India, mm-hmm. uh, what uh, are you reading the, the uh, works in their original uh, language or are you reading translated versions? That's interesting. Tagore, fortunately for us now, uh, translated 
some of his works, if not all of them. Um, there are various translations of Hafiz and Kabir, and actually Tagore had produced songs of Kabir, which I look at frequently. And so there was uh, translations done by Asian authors or um, authors that were familiar with those languages, and they worked together. And, and I, I find that happening now, too. Uh, some of the, our contemporaries now are working with translators to produce works and you know that's been going on for a while so you know it's I'm all for translations I asked one of my faculty uh, I would say visiting faculty actually uh, one of our our major faculties at Pacific about translation specifically because there's always this sense that am I reading the right translation and the answer given was all of the translations are in conversation with one another. That was E.J. Coe mm. who had given that answer. And and I thought that that was brilliant because then it just took the pressure off me having to, okay, do I need to research how well this translation was done, which is not necessarily something I'm, I'm fully engaged with. I wouldn't be able to do that. So, um, But I think that translations have so much to offer because they do – bring us closer to the, the experience that the author is, is trying to relay through their artwork. And we don't want to be limited by language. No. So, yeah. No, That's no, how I feel. Mm. I guess for me, the same concern as you uh, just mentioned, when I'm reading mm. the work of some someone that doesn't uh, didn't write in the language that I'm reading it in, am I getting the best interpretation, you know, and I don't, and I always am concerned about, about, about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but you've made me feel better as well, uh, good, good. about yeah. translation. So you have confidence in them generally. I do. And then, you know, there are going to be literary works such as essays that are written about the translation. So for example, in a class that I am TAing in right now through Pacific, uh, we read the vegetarian, which was translated by a British author, and it was writ written in originally in Korean. And the subject matter was so intense and really uprooting in terms of violence and atrocities against women and so forth, that there had to be some questioning about the material, because it was a presentation of, of the culture in a way that really kind of marked it in, in some degree. So there was an essay couple of maybe more essays that we read in the class with regards to the translation. So if one wanted to be critical about the translation, there are people who are writing about the translation. And that's something that's good to know, I think, because it does allow for accountability by mm -hmm. the translators and not, you know, we're not just assuming that it's good work, which it has its place. I think every piece has its place, as E.J. Coe had, had uh, shared with me. Well, thanks for that insight. And and just yeah. for just for a, a moment, uh, you don't have to go far off on this unless you want to. Mm. For mm. you made a reference a couple of times uh, about the partition. Uh, mm. You're talking about uh, when uh, India was split into Pakistan and India. Yes. Okay, and that um, for a lot of people that are connected to that place on the planet. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose it was so much, some, somewhat of a tumultuous uh, event. Very tumultuous. And with any type of war, atrocity, violence, and just 
geographical splitting, as one can imagine, is the reverberation takes place throughout generations. And that's what I was sort of talking about when I was talking about the contemporary women writers. Uh, One author that really has captured a lot of what it means to be a 20-something or a 30-something as a descendant from that period is Fatima Asghar um, in their poetry collection, If They Come For Us, because a lot of what we go through as Americans, we, we're, we're going through the pandemic, we've gone through 9-11, and then there's a whole generation of people that are kind of uh, coming out of that. And so for the partition, we're seeing so much um, new thinking in terms of my perspective as a 50-year-old. You know, I'm a descendant of a person who was born prior to the partition. However, Oscar is expressing what it feels like to be a generation later. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that sort of witnessing of an event that isn't really part of one's own experience is being expressed so eloquently in poetry. And sometimes poetry can make things clear in, in different ways. Um, the pain, the suffering, the, the prejudice that comes along with being from a certain ethnic group and the misunderstandings, but also what Oscar did in that collection is make it so real as, you know, if I were to meet someone of that generation, they are experiencing the partition in a way that's new to me. Um, for me, my mother told me about it and, you know, she still tells me about it, about some of the experiences. And when my grandmother was alive, I experienced it through her telling and her stories and so this new generation of writers is really bringing to the literary landscape a, a perspective that is necessary. And it's, um, there are so many lessons there, I think, for myself and perhaps all, all readers. And when you say necessary, necessary mm-hmm. for, for what? To heal or to understand where to go from here or maybe something else? You know, E.W., you are really saying exactly what I would say, is that it is a source of where we can learn from and perhaps avoid in some regard. Um, it's a source of where people who have who are experiencing the same thing but do not have a platform, as in a book or an interview, uh, that they are being heard in different ways. Uh, and those things are intertwined and it's, it's a, it's a history lesson and it's an awakening for me personally to hear a young person talk about the partition and for them, for their willingness to go into that subject matter is really, it's really profound. And it, and it's, it elevates the young writer and the, the generation's before or you know after me and i feel confidence in in their ability to tell those stories and to share 
their own experience and to relate back to what actually happened in 1947 leading up to that. Great. Thank you. Thank mm. you for that insight. Again, we're talking to Roni Bopla, British Indo-American poet and visual artist. From her abode in and around Sacramento, California, here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And, I, I, you know, it's getting me to another question. And I know I, I send you questions, and then I go off into things I didn't send you, but you don't mind, I love, I'm sure. Nah. No. Um, how, how much would you say of an influence are your cultural and ethnic-related experiences, your, your sex as well, mm-hmm. to what you, what you are, what you're doing? Well, at this age, I think all of those identifiers are becoming less and less important. The only, I think they become important when, I mean, this is real time stuff. I mean, when I go into a poetry workshop and there's a person who has gone through something that I have gone through 20 or 30 years ago, then it's, it becomes an important thing for me to identify myself with like for example my where i'm born i was born in britain and i'm indian and so forth uh, so i think being open to to being identified you know as an indian woman being open to being identified as a woman um being open to some of those things is is just enough because you know i would prefer to just, you know, go by my name, Roni Bopla, and I'm having a conversation with you. However, you know, as we authors do is we have these biographies and they, they speak to the times. So an example would be when I had first created my first biography, as you had so nicely read, that didn't have my um, location, you know, it didn't talk about the fact that I was British and and some of those things, because at the time, I didn't feel it was necessary, given the milieu that I was in, maybe the the issues that I was writing about. But I think during this time and period, um, the immigrant experience is, is bubbled up again, and it's become part of the dialogue. Mm. Um, so, so for that reason, those identifiers have become prominent. And my writing does not necessarily address some of those things. I think the bio itself is a piece of work. And then my writing reflects what is important to me. Um, I don't try to write about things that I don't understand or I don't have any personal stake in. Um, But I, I certainly don't make an effort to write about Indian issues or I don't make an effort to write about LGBTQ issues or, or women issues. It's just, uh, it's, there are certain things that I gravitate toward when I write. It's more personal, a human than, Mm -hmm. than anything. So, uh, I guess related to a specific identifier, Uh, is that, is that fair to say? Yes. And, and you know, if if you told me to write a poem about 
the partition, I, I would do it. I mean, I, I would, you would, if you would be commissioning me to write something that I'm aware of and I'm, I, I'm connected to, but that's not, that's not what gives me joy in terms of the satisfaction of completing a piece of art. I, I totally understand that. You know? mm. I mean, I, I write as well, and, and I, I consider myself connected to certain things, certain cultural ways and histories, uh, and ethnicity. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a male, I'm heterosexual, all that, and it influences me. But when I write, oftentimes it's about the eternal questions that are connected to humanity or looking out the window and watching a bird fly from a tree to a bird bath. You know, and capturing that because it it captures me for a moment, and mm -hmm. and that's just human. You know, I mean, it's all human, I guess, mm -hmm. right? Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, it starts getting esoteric when you start trying to define it. Mm -hmm. um, but how about uh, a poem? Do you have any nearby? I do. I picked, and you know, I always when I talk to my peers, I always say, have a poem in your purse or in your pocket, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have this poem and it's, 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 I don't preface my poems, So please ask questions. Um, War God. After Sikanda, Parvati, Yamuna, seventh century stone. Now I become irreverent toward the god of war. Gods of war are to be revered in museums. A small admission fee is paid. The stone hard and safe, now protected from natural deformation or fracture. An ancient legacy is preserved as a warning. The fallacy of religious piety reiterates a cue of open-ended destruction. Parvati's inclinations are tarred. A cevador scoots on his hands, dragging his leg stumps around a hoven, fueled with black till joe and incense cones. Trained village women wade in night soil water, wailing in unison at the behest of gods. Sati is directed by man-made stones. Chiseled foreheads, dusty and smeared with red powder, keep ancestral lineage of domination in view. Hmm. Powerful. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. It is, you know, uh, National Poetry Month, I guess. Uh, my associate yes. producer. Yeah, April is it National Poetry Month. I, my my yeah. associate producer, uh, Dr. Michael Pavese, told me that. I said, isn't every month National Poetry Month? <laughs> it yes. should be. Um, so that was a wonderful piece. And I, I War God was the title, I gather. Yes. Uh, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And Thank you. also, I'm... I, you know, I'm always sensitive because my last name is a tough one. And I know for years I've dealt with people not being able to say it. Mm -hmm. I, am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay, good. You know, I it's interesting you ask because I understand that. And I, I used to be a, a, a K through six teacher. And 
it was so important for me to say their names correctly because my brother and I went through kind of that period where people would mispronounce our names and it really, it kind of hurt, you mm-hmm. know, because we, we only, that's all we had really. We didn't have like cars. We didn't have diamonds. We didn't have, that's all we had was our names, right? And we our backpacks. So, um, but I think as time has worn on and I, I'm not sensitive, but I like to share that's how my name is pronounced. But the interesting thing is if you go to different parts of India or if you go to Britain or anywhere else, they will pronounce it differently. And it just confuses me because I don't know if when my dad wrote that name down on my birth certificate, he really knew how to say it himself. Because it's not a typical Indian name, if you want to say that, because a lot of Indian names... And I, I can't speak for all Indian names, but there has been a tradition of naming that goes back to Sanskrit, which is the Vedic language of India. And my name supposedly, and this is a turning into myth now, is it was supposed to be Rohini, um, but my dad spelled it R-H-O-N-Y. So... I think that it was intentional in some way, but you know, it, it just, it, it makes me think about that a lot because I try to make an effort to say people's names and your name as well. And I just hope that the person likes the way I say it. And that's the end of it. <laughs> well, it is important. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a professor at a, at a, mm. basically it's a, it's a private college, but it's a community college, uh, demographic. So all sorts of folks come through the door and I'm not, uh, very, uh, for a lot of, uh, names, I, I'm not experienced at pronouncing. Uh, mm. so I make a point to that. They, they help me understand how to say it. And a lot of times I'm like, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. And I say, no, no, it does matter. Mm-hmm. It's your name. Yeah, that's so kind. And I think that's all we can do is to do our best and learn it. Right. And why not learn it? It expands yeah. you as an individual as well. And the other person feels great. It's a win-win, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for doing that. Oh, my pleasure, please. And uh, we're, we're, believe it or not, we're getting towards the end of our conversation. Um, mm-hmm. We'll have to have another one for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, a couple of things I'm looking here at uh, in my in my notes. I It, it mentions... Well, you do uh, sort of work with visual arts as well as the written word. How do you, how do you, is there a connection between the two or are they two separate worlds for you? They're actually very connected. I'm, that's part of my thesis, uh, working with visual art and literary art. And I, I take my, my mentorship is through Milton Bowen's who has helped me with developing my collage and acrylic paints. But what I do is I go back and forth between describing the visual art, its process and how it makes me feel. Um, there's, there's an 18th century word that's typically used, which is ekphrasis. But I've part of my thesis was developing a new word that harkens back to my Indian heritage, which is pavika. And that's what I'm working on now is, is making that connection a little bit more real for my own understanding and relating it to my own heritage and a little bit, I mean, this is, this is colonial stuff. This is, um, this is a word, ekphrasis has been used in 
different contexts, but it's an accepted word. And I'm trying to move away from that to make it more relevant to my own culture. And so I'm, I'm using Pavika, but the, the process is, I really encourage you to dabble in any type of visual art and see how words can emerge from that. I, I really encourage it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've done a bit of that myself. Sometimes mm. paint phrases on a canvas, you know, uh, mm that are hopefully compelling and they go also with the, the color and, and the image, the imagery, which is abstract. And it is fun at least to do it just for myself and uh, see how people respond. Um, but well, it, when you come to Sacramento and stay with me here, I have a little space. I have a you know, fairly significant space for poets and writers and artists. So it's not a big home. It's just, I've, there's a space for you. So when you come, bring your paints. <laughs> oh, I'm honored. That That's a wonderful invitation. Thank you so much. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. And uh, just to, to wrap it up, any any general thoughts uh, you'd like to share with the listeners? And maybe if, if you'd like uh, to share a way that they connect can connect with you, that's, that's fine too. Well, I'm available on Facebook, which I'm happy to, I accept all friendships. I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing from your listeners and uh, I like having that community and um, I just wish everybody a, a wonderful, um, you know, uh, just become reverberant in your artwork and let that guide your thinking and keep you on a, a good path of mental well-being. And what about those folks that don't consider themselves artists? What would you say to them? Uh, I, I, I consider you artists. I do too. Everybody has it. Absolutely. And what's next for you? What, what's next? Well, immediately tomorrow I am honored to be included in a Pacific University event. Uh, this is a, a grant space that they've opened up for me. And that's going to be... A, a vigil for the Asian American Pacific Islander community. So I'll be reading for that event. And it's a public event, so if anyone wanted to attend, they would just have to look it up by Pacific University and the AAPI vigil. Wonderful. And that's what I'm working on right now and uh, staying busy with the arts and, and uh, looking forward to more creativity. Well, I I am so happy we spoke. I look forward to speaking with you again, and maybe one day we will cross paths. I'll, I'll get to hang out with you in Sacramento, or maybe you can come out here to the East Coast. We will hang out. I would love no it. Doubt. No Thank doubt. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie Bopla. Thank you. It was a great joy to be with you. Same here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
two poems by W.H. Auden and one by Robert Frost. These are for Tim Barrett. Musée de Beaux-Arts by W.H. Auden About suffering they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. Their Lonely Betters by W. H. Auden As I listened from a beach chair in the shade to all the noises that my garden made, it seemed to me only proper that words should be withheld from vegetables and birds. A robin with no Christian name ran through the robin anthem, which was all it knew, and rustling flowers for some third party waited to see which pairs, if any, should get mated. Not one of them was capable of lying. There was not one which knew that it was dying, or could have, with a rhythm or a rhyme, assumed responsibility for time. Let them leave language to their lonely betters, who count some days and long for certain letters. We too make noises when we laugh or weep. Words are for those with promises to keep. Nothing Gold Can Stay by Robert Frost Nature's first green is gold, her hardest you to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay.
old man. I thought that old man was a good man, though that remains to be seen. On the surface, it is charming but lean. It is more than his vulnerability because of an accent when he speaks. The machinations of his mind as they manifest in action will tell the tale of what he truly seeks. Figured out just what's wrong with me. I need to get loaded and lay. That's the only decent way that I can force it to make it through the long cold night of here. Now, uh, you might think that's funny coming from a man of my age, but if you think I'm jiving you, sweetheart, you can meet me backstage. I finally figured out just what's wrong with me. Oh, I need to get loaded and lay. Yeah, I finally figured out just what my main problem is. I want to be ravished and run. You, you can forget all about the need for restraint. I, I want to get my sweet milk chime. Hey, I've tried persuasion, booze, and assault. And the way the Marin County women look, it ain't but half my fault. Yeah, I finally figured out what my main problem is. Oh, I need to be ravished and run. Yes, I For quite a few days, I want to be tortured and teased. I know San Francisco women must have a thousand ways to keep a New York boy all sweaty and pleased. You can drag out your fake fur, your lashes and lace. You can smear guacamole all over my face. Yeah, I'm by my now for quite a few days. Or today I want to be tortured and teased. You know, I finally figured out just what my main problem is. I need to get loaded and lay. Believe me, I wouldn't have even brought the subject up, except it's been up on its own now for days. I don't care if you want to stand, stoop, or sit. Just don't think about stopping, child, until I beg you to quit. I finally figured out just what's wrong with me. Yeah, I need to get a loaded and lay. Yeah, I wanna be tortured and tear. Child, I need to get a loaded and lay. And there you have it, episode 415 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. 
with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Roni Bopla, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, poets W.H. Audens and Robert Frost, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Thelonious Monk, David Bowie, Yusef Days, Charlie Stacy, Rocco Palladino, Brittany Howard, David Bromberg, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And, of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to do our best with this time. Take care.